Welcome to Creating Synergy, where we explore what it takes to transform. We are powered by Synergy IQ. Our mission is to help leaders create world-class businesses where people are safe, valued, inspired, and fulfilled. We can only do this with our amazing community. So thank you for listening. Hey there, Synergizers, and welcome back to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, and today we have the lovely Susan Stewart on the show, and she's the global knowledge culture leader at the large engineering advisory firm, Oricon. Sue is a strategy, business transformation, and change management specialist, having championed many major projects in in multinational professional services, government and private organisation, including firms such as Oricon, Woods Bagot, Hood Sweeney, Unispace, Ernst & Young, and she's also chaired the Change Connect group for seven years. Sue is an accomplished and confident leader, driving the implementation of a range of projects across America, Europe, Middle East and Asia Pacific, which have included global strategic planning, new international market expansion, mergers and acquisitions, culture transformation, knowledge management strategy, business development strategy, technology system implementations, and organizational restructures. As a young honors graduate, Sue's It's a Wonderful Life moment came when she bogged her tractor in a wheat field and realized that the world would be a better place if she no longer worked in research. Luckily, a big four firm adopted her and for the next decade, she absorbed the best practice in strategy, organizational development, change and communication and immersed herself in the explosion of the digital world. Along the way, she completed a post-grad in comms, masters of arts and has scribbled her thoughts in papers and presented her experiences at national and international conferences. Although well-credentialed, Sue is most proud of her family and her ability to make the most out of leftovers, her innate and irrelevant knowledge of the film industry, and her love of making Spotify playlists. So talk about uh, Spotify playlists. When preparing for this podcast, Sue actually created a career playlist for her journey and experiences, which we deep dive into during the podcast. I know you'll love this episode, and if you do, be sure to hit subscribe and check us out at synergyiq.com.au. So welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, your host. And today we have Sue Stewart, the Global Knowledge and Culture Leader at Oricon, a worldwide engineering firm. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Sue. Daniel. It's, um, I would normally kick off the show just asking a little bit about your background. You and I have had a few conversations off uh, We off have. Air, and you have a really interesting story or you've... you've an interesting way of breaking up your career into music titles. Absolutely. Can we dive straight into, into that? that? Like where is it going? I'm, I'm really interested in this. You've broken up into four phases. So you're early in your career being phase one. Absolutely. Tell I, us a little yeah, bit about I think phase one. for me, career has not been linear. And so trying to talk about my, you know, first I did this and then I did that. To me, it wasn't this perfect trajectory. There was a lot of um, points where I totally changed and to use the word of 2020, I suppose pivoted <laughs> into a different space. Um, and so my my first phase, I, um, I, I'm i a bit of a lover of music and podcasts and playlists and things like that. Um, I call Should I Stay or Should I Go from The Clash? Um, and this is me 
So everyone's singing that in their head. They are. <laughs> Get that little dun 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 in the background. But it's very much around um, that, you know, you, you finish university and for me kind of finally graduating was a bit of a journey in itself. I started a few courses, didn't feel right, finally ended up in a, a degree in, of all things, uh, agricultural science in an honours degree and came out and was this bright young thing, had this, you know, a really, really great job um, but realised that work isn't university and so things that I was really good at at university like lab work I got it down pat in in real labs and real environments I just didn't enjoy it as much and so for me it was that moment of do I keep doing this thing that I've studied for that I've invested all this time and and money um, going down this path or do I start to really acknowledge what are the things that I actually really enjoy and also happen to be the things that I'm better at than some of the traditional science aspects? So that's why it's essentially should I stay or should I go? So you were, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were cleaning dirt. Is that, <laughs> is that, is that yes, right? Um, yes, there are people that clean dirt. Uh, <laughs> I specialised in um, plant pathology of all things okay. and was working at uh, the Institute of Horticultural Development in Victoria and we were doing uh, ex exploring different old, uh, fum fumigants for to replace methyl bromide. So we were dealing with bulb growers in Dandenongs, um, and part of that process was actually seeing if the fumigants worked, which meant doing uh, boreholes and, and getting soil samples. And then essentially, I spent three months washing that soil to see if the fungus had survived in it. So it was uh, very much a time when. Unfortunately, we didn't have Spotify or anything and I would have to, you know, I listened to Triple J every day, sit there and turn it on at 8 o'clock in the morning and then 5.30 at night I would have maybe cleaned 10 samples um, and studied them. So it was a lot of monotony. Um, I knew it was important to do. Was I good at it? Um, my maiden name was Ferulio and my boss used to call it the Ferulio factor because <laughs> when it came to some of the lab work, there was always some really weird, unusual outcomes. And he's like, I think that one there is an outlier. That's a Ferulio factor. Um, <laughs> because he knew, I think Sue was a little bit bored and maybe that one didn't work very well. So <laughs> I think um, what I did like during that period was working with the bulb growers um, and because we had to get funding from, you know, government agencies, we had to get the bulb growers on board to actually give us parts of their land, give us some labourers, um, pay for the bulbs. Yep. Um, they weren't allowed to use the flowers. And in, in flower industry, you know, land is, is that's where the money is. So we had to work with them really closely to get them on board through this particular process. Mm. And it was a big change for them. They were using a, a fumigant that worked perfectly. But international standards were replacing it. So they, they had a burning platform for change. Yeah. So it was, I suppose, my first real change project, to be honest, um, and working with them and getting them on board. And, and they would be giving me journal articles that they'd got from um, the Netherlands and they'd translate the journal article for me and, and, you know, give it to me and say, this is some research happening in the in Netherlands um, with bulbs and things. You, you could try that here. And I'd be like, okay, let's give it a whirl. <laughs> um, and then reporting back and communicating that back. So I realised I loved all that bit and that was a bit that I was really good at. It was that. It's the business aspect. It was the pure science yeah, bit that yeah. was probably not my strength so you got was the, the light bulb moment when you bogged 
a tractor? Is that? Yes. Is that? <laughs> I then um, I moved to Adelaide for love, um, who is now my husband, and worked uh, at Roseworthy in dryland um, agriculture. And so that's essentially working with with wheat. We were looking at drought resistant wheat varieties. And my boss from my first job said, "You won't enjoy it. Like it's it's even it's even harder than you know working with the bulb growers." And it was it was it was really hard work in you know the summers of Adelaide, which I'd not experienced before. So where were you before? Uh, in Victoria. In Victoria. Yeah, and there was one day, and I just wasn't. I didn't. I didn't enjoy the work environment as well. I'm very much someone that likes to um, kind of know who I'm working with and hello. And I used to have a little competition with myself: how many good mornings could I get when I started work? Because <laughs> back then it was all offices. So I would walk past and say good morning, and people would look at me with this weird look as if that's that crazy girl that started from. This must be a Melbourne thing because she's crazy. Saying hello is an odd thing these days as well. And then <laughs> one one day I got tragged. Uh, tragged. Uh, stuck in um, the mud in with this tractor of me of all people driving a tractor, but anyway, and it was my it was my burning platform essentially, and just went. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to. I don't want to drive a tractor. I don't want to be in the dirt. I really enjoy this communication side and the thing. It's enough's enough now. I've I've tried for eighteen months, and this is my pivot moment, yeah. um, and that's what made me move. It's a I want, going back to your point of. Uh, spending all this money mm. on uni and then actually making a decision, it's pretty, you're pretty self aware at such a young age to make that decision. There's a lot of people that just continue it, trudge it out, mm. try to make it work, end up living lives that really don't fit their, their needs. So, how, how did you? Build the confidence, or is that just who you are at the, at the core um. of doing what you love? I do like a challenge. I'm, I am one of those people that, you know, says if people say, oh, you can't do this, I'm like, okay, then that is the thing that I'm going to work on. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if that comes back from my background. Um, you know, my mum and dad were really hard workers. My father was um, the son of an Italian immigrant. My father, you know, used to run at the petrol station to put petrol in the car because, yeah. you know, that was wasted time. <laughs> um so I think I came from that background of, you know, you had to give everything your all. But I also had, even though I'd made this decision, I still didn't really know what it meant. At the mm. time, um, you know, the options for if you're good at communications, did that mean I had to go into PR? And I, I didn't want to go down that route. Yeah. And I am admittedly tried to, I applied to jobs within within um, the agricultural industry in a communications role and they were saying, I'm sorry, we just want a journalist. And I'm like, but... I can actually write and I know what I'm writing about. Like I've, yeah. I've studied this thing and they were just not at all interested. And so I was a little bit despondent there for a while and applied for a lot. There was a job um, in the paper, this tiny little job in the paper that was for a, um, a role at Ernst & Young and it was said, you know, you had the three key skills were um, you could do research, you could write and you could uh, do presentation, like pulling stuff together. And I looked at it and I said, I, th I think I could do this job. But my husband's like, there is, well, my now husband, is like, there's no way you're getting that job. And I went, oh, hello, challenge, <laughs> challenge accepted. Challenge accepted. Um, and it was embarrassingly, really embarrassingly, um, put my CTV together like a, um, it was a brochure on myself. <laughs> And I don't want to get into the details. So of someone who's nervous about talking about themselves today. <laughs> Just telling everything. 
you're and creating brochures. Um, I know how bad is that? And they rang me up and I had that first level interview and I said, look, I'm really sorry, but you've got to tell me, how did I get this far? Like, And he said to me, well, I read this thing that you wrote, this brochure, and I'm like, this is the person we need. And he said, and then the back page I see qualifications, Bachelor of Agricultural Science. And he went, but I have to meet this girl. Like how did she mm. had me until this tiny this, print, yeah. like eight-point font or something yeah. at the bottom um, and was very lucky to, what I say, be adopted by Ernst & Young and worked in a research role in their audit area um, so working on so beards and proposals. So we're moving into phase two. We are two. moving into phase two. I suppose Fa- I've jumped, haven't phase I? Phase two. Talk to phase us. Phase two is um, my praise you, my fat boy slim period. <laughs> Um, and this is not necessarily praising me of how awesome I am. It's more looking back for me to look back during that period and realise how incredibly lucky I was to be in a, in a period where um, I, I was there for 10 years and over that time a lot of change happened in professional services firms. It went, you know, from six firms to four firms. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were involved in the, um, at, a, at an Adelaide level, being involved in, you know, that whole uh, merger perspective with Andersons, being involved in a demerger where consulting uncoupled. I had a phenomenal uh, leader slash mentor who saw my differences not as strange and unusual, but something that was a real strength. Mm. Um, and so he... Out-of-the-box thinking. My out-of-the-box thinking. Um, and he just brought me into anything and everything. And I was coming from, like I said before, my background and, um, you know, put your hand up for everything, give it a go, put in your best. Um, and so I just, anything he'd throw at me, I'd like, okay, I'll catch that. I'll, I'll see what I can do. I'm not afraid asking questions. So, you know, getting that learning. They were really supportive during... Um, having kids as well um, and enabling me to, uh, I did post-grad studies. Um, I, when I went on the maternity leave the second time, um, I kind of knew what I was doing and uh, felt a bit more confident being being a mum um, and, you know, said, look, I wouldn't mind doing my master's at the same time. And they're like, yeah, sure, we'll pay for you to do your master's. Um, so really incredibly. In business? Uh, no, Master of Arts. Master of Arts. And I picked like strategy, communications yep. and things like that. Yep. And I decided to do that from a growth mindset perspective of um, my strength is not necessarily in – I'm good with economics when it comes down to, say, accounting and those kind of aspects is not an area where I have a strength in. And a growth mindset to me is focus focus on the things that you're good on and build on them and become expertise in that area and knowing where – you need support and so using others for that because if we if you focus on all the things that you're not strong at you end up rounding off your edges and it's the edges that make you different it's why you're brought to the table for your different perspective so um I, I and I spoke to my boss about that you know do I what route do I do and he was really supportive and said no go where your strengths are and, and focus on that so and also it was the emergence of digital. I mean, I, I worked at a time where, um, you know, e-commerce happened and, you know, EY did training on what is e-commerce in retail. Like we went through all of these, which is funny to look back now. <laughs> um, but I, it, it was quite an explosion of things that were happening. Um, and so I feel very privileged to have experienced that period and had a lot of different leaders as well that um i learned from whether i learned of what to do and not what to do yeah 
um, but did have that freedom to be able to be myself as well. Well, you, you've mentioned uh, per previously that you worked on many memorable projects. Mm. The, the big consulting, the big four consulting firm, you would see some you would see almost everything in in that role. Can mm-hmm. you tell us some of the some of the most memorable projects? Obviously, confidentiality aside, as a, a while ago, but uh, all the uh, anything that sort of sticks in your mind at the time of some of the work you were doing back then. Um, some of the aspects around. I mean, I the majority of my time was inside the business, so okay. for about eight to nine years of that was inside, and then it was only towards the end I started working on the okay. other side. Which was really interesting because when you're inside a business, you can be more aggressive in your disruption, I suppose. Yeah. You can challenge more because you know the leaders you've got to rapport. Mm. Um, then you go into the consulting side and you look at things and go, ooh, but mm. I can't say anything. <laughs> you know, like you've, and how do I reframe that in mm. a different way? So that to me was a really big leap of learning of going from, yeah, generally you can say what you think, but when you're with a, you've got to manage that message and how can you get the most out of it. You come more from an influencing perspective and how you can change that. So that was really challenging. In terms of stories with clients, well, I never tell. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I'm just trying to think of some that might be. Um, well, I'm, I'm now, you've, you've piqued my interest in some of the, uh, the influences that you may have had internally versus externally. Mm-hmm. How did you manage uh the influencing of an external client if you were in that position? Um, It's actually a really good question. I drew on um, like my leaders in that role very much. I'm I'm very much someone that needs to go out and ask a lot of questions and say to people, you know, when you've done this role or what are some things that I've learned. So I, I, I was always asking people like peers and that, how it worked. I was fortunate to have um, a leader where I, um, he could see that I would that that he I'm a really bad poker face. <laughs> so the way that I deal with that, if if ever there's a client out there, you're wondering why do I write so many copious notes? It's for me to process the information of what I'm seeing and hearing and learning, and not necessarily showing you visually that oh dear God, did you really say that? Um, <laughs> and so and then being able to process that. So I would come back, process it. I'm I'm a big drawer, so I would draw it and do kind of thinking, and then go back to. Um, you know, that project team and say, this is what I'm thinking. Um, I have real concerns around these particular areas. These are my red lights. How can we approach the client together? And often um, we would do it collaboratively. I was lucky to, um, in my internal role, get a lot of BD training as well because that was part of the space mm. that I was in, the marketing comms BD space. So I did have some learnings from that, but it wasn't practical because I was part of the other side. So this was a big leap for me and I learnt um, a lot from the people that I worked with. I'm, I'm a big learner from watching. Yeah. Um, so using that approach essentially was building off others. Yeah. Your for, for, look. This is from our all of our conversations today. Even just in preparation for the podcast, uh, hearing and listening to the, your creative mind and the way you present to people internally and try to influence you. You listen or hear a topic mm-hmm. and it's almost like your brain just takes off and goes off in a direction and everyone else has to now catch up, uh, which is an amazing trait. Where do you 
believe that comes from your your ability to think outside the box uh, and run off and create ideas that people haven't even thought about. Where does it come from? I think it was just there. I think what has happened though is a big thing for me, I think one of the things that we did do when we were at EY, um, part of the professional development, we did a Myers-Briggs um, mm -hmm. session. And I know people are like, I love Myers-Briggs. I hate Myers-Briggs. To me, the biggest thing through that was, oh, not everyone thinks the same as me. I really thought everyone did think that way. I thought they all processed um, content, you know, things were popping in their head and bubbles were popping up <laughs> and bits throw ideas that I'd heard yesterday or read last week or I experienced. I thought everyone thought that way and it wasn't until this moment I'm like, oh. Mm. So um, trying to explain how that works is a little bit complicated for me but what I've learned is um, over the years is I need to understand to even though my mind works that way and I, I I do have to draw it and process it to get it to synthesize it to then be able to be bring people on the journey um, so I've had to change I'm very much an extroverted brainstormer as well my husband's just learned let her just go for a while and eventually she'll get there um, you know which which point do I listen to um, and I've learned that I that I have to stop um, externally brainstorming on people because it's overwhelming, particularly for people that can't take that. It's going to be my next, that, my next question. How, how have you managed the overwhelm that you could potentially have on some people? No, I love it. So you are, I'm exhausting. But it, it, it yeah, you know, in be. a world of especially consulting, which is the world I play in, it, it can be uh, overwhelming for some. How, how have you managed that? I think being able to then bring them into that conversation and not um, – not be so quick to jump to these things that are popping in my head. And at least if I can put them down, I need to get them out. That's the problem. So I've learned to draw more and get them out on paper rather than telling people. And then using different, um, you know, methods, whether it's, you know, design thinking processes or workshops and that to get them to think outside as well and start to kind of map that. A lot of sticky notes. I use a lot of um, open consultation and thinking around um, you know, sticky notes on boards, where are we thinking, let's journey map this, what are the experiences, um, to then get them to see different linkages and then I can bring my craziness into the, <laughs> into the mix. So for those who can't see through the video or we've got some yellow draft paper <laughs> in front of us with notes scribbled all over them, I absolutely love it. In fact, I think you told me how to structure this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's like I it's great. I absolutely it's really one of the easiest podcasts I've had to prepare for because uh, everything was handed to me on a platter. It's, it's interesting though <laughs> you say that, but I I think I have to I have to structure it because otherwise it would go nowhere. Yeah. Um, and I've learned to go. You've got to bring in all these things into something. That can be used. I'm 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 in absolute love with the way your brain works. And what's funny to me, or striking to me, I should say more, is that in a world of what seems to be chaos, is a lot of structure. It's organised chaos, mm. isn't it? Really, it is. it's it's great the way. I don't know that my husband would call it organised, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> You're living with him might be a different <laughs> different. But no, so 
All right, so moving in, we want to move into phase three now yep. of your career. What were the key learnings coming out of EY? You're working for this big cutthroat, uh, big four yep. firm. How, how did you, what learnings did you get out of that? Um, I think very much that it's okay to be authentic. Um, mm, and absolutely. I mean, I, when I first started at EY, it was very structured and hierarchical and, you know, everything was kind of in its place. At the time, you know, all women who were wearing skirts must wear stockings. It was that kind of, I rocked up one day and it was 42 degrees in Adelaide and, and I didn't wear stockings on the tram and I I actually had someone look at me and say, so no stockings today, Sue. And I was like, oh, wow, okay, we're, we're in that organisation. <laughs> but in, in that 10-year period, the culture, you know, totally transformed. Um, but I think I did learn that it is okay to be yourself and that if you are authentic, that's when you your strengths really shine. Mm. Whereas if I had have gone down that route of, you know, I'm going to try and become, you know, this finance person and do all these other things that I never felt I really was, a, you know, strength at, um, I, I don't think I would be I am today. Mm. So I agree. I, 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 there's human beings have a pretty good bullshit radar, right? Yeah. And if you're not being authentic, most people will understand. Or they, they, you know, yep. this whole fake it till you make it, that, that is a, a, a saying that gets thrown around, especially mm. in consulting a lot. It does. But it works to an extent, right? Because mm. you, if you're not authentic while you're faking it, I suppose, then people can see right through it. Absolutely. Lose yourself by Eminem ah, is, yes. your, is your phase three. And I suppose I picked that song because it's kind of, you know, you've got this one shot and, um, you know, make the most of it essentially. And I came out of uh, um, EY at the time, you know, it's, it's, they're dynamic organisations and they move with markets and so the consulting arm that I was working in um, closed down in Adelaide. So I was essentially re retrenched. I could have that option of... Do I, I had a bit of a do I stay or do I go again? Do I do I continue to go back into an old role that they were saying there's a role here that you could take? And I'm thinking, I did that role eight years mm. ago. Do I, you know, 10 years ago, do I really want to go back into that? Or I've, I've come with this, this, all this experience. And so um, I decided to take that leap. And in working for a big four, it is, you know, you do have a bit of a brand stamp. Um, and because of the the support that I'd had, like, you know, I came with that brand stamp of you come from Big Four, there is an element of best practice. They are a big, they're Big Four big, for a reason. Um, but then also having that education aspect around it. Um, so I had, I, I joined um, Woods Baggett, a global architecture firm, um, and originally was in a consulting space and, um, which was great. I have some funny stories about that, but I can't tell you those ones. Um, we'll leave it for a while. We'll leave it, yeah, we'll leave it for the after podcast. Um, but it is interesting from a workplace design perspective, that's what I was working where organisations were saying, you know, we want to go into open plan and then they would, you know, ring up at the last minute saying, oh, people won't pack their boxes to move. Can You know how you spoke to me a year ago about um, change management? Can you come and fix it? It's like, what, today? You want me to fix the today's change management day? Um, and that was really <laughs> challenging for me to be able to say it very nicely to a client, well, okay, let's sit down and, and work through this. Um, talk about change management at the last minute. Uh, and so, which, which is a 
still to this it's not day, change management it's, <laughs> it's not change management when it's last minute it's I, it, no one should call it that it's can you help me i've got an emergency yeah um it's like the 911 help yeah. you know yeah. that's what it is but how come it happen can i can we just pick on that for once how come it happens so often where I mean, look, we work we do change management that i could almost guarantee 80% of the work we do is, is called in after is the, the fact. 911. Is the 911. Um, I think it comes in because there is a lack of understanding that it is actually an area of expertise just as much. If you've got a project and you have got, um, you know, the IT, the CIO, let's say it's an ERP implementation yep. project and you, we need the CIO because that's a piece of technology, that's where the change person becoming, come in at that absolute stage. They should, should be part of the decision of consultation around the business of what is the problem at hand, what are we trying to solve, what then is the tool that we're going to use that. And so and unless you start at that very beginning, to mm. me it's not change management. No, I agree. Um, and it's a bit like I, I'm, I'm really good with leftovers. One of my superpowers is, you know, <laughs> what's for dinner? I don't know. Let me open the fridge and, oh, we had a bit of this and a bit of this and I make this thing up. And to me, when you bring in a change manager at the end, you're ex- you're giving them leftovers and saying, we've got a dinner party of 30 people. What can you whip up? What can you whip up? Mm-hmm. Compared to saying, we've got a dinner party of 30 people. The reason we're bringing them together is X, Y, Z. This is how it's going to work. And taking it at the very, well, this is the experience of how I'm even going to invite them to the dinner party. Yeah, I love that. So unless you bring them in then, we need a name to either fix the word change management, to not to say management because there's more to it than that, or rename the bit at the end, this leftover 911 section to just say that's actually not change management and I can help you with emergency implementation needs but it's not change management. That dinner party analogy is fantastic. (laughs) Did you just come up with that then? Oh, I'm sorry, I did. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's brilliant because if you th- actually think about it, uh, there might be some people who are gluten-free, there might be some people who are vegetarian. Absolutely. If you're going to whip together something, you're not really catering for all the different uh, the different Absolutely. needs of each stakeholder, right? So I think it's uh, I'm yeah, a, diabetic. A, a brilliant. Yeah, I don't brilliant. eat seafood. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to Woods Bagot, we're... Uh... Oh, yeah, back to there, sorry. <laughs> um, but... And at the time, they were having a new uh, managing partner, new strategy, um, which was really exciting, taking the business from being focused, um, you know, as an office in Adelaide to being part of a global studio and this whole connection that someone could be working, there could be a project in Adelaide and and different people around the globe could be working on that particular project. So So what what year are we in? Where are we at now? I can't remember the year. Uh, See, my mind doesn't work well with numbers. No. Maybe 15 years ago. Okay. Um, so early so, 2000s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it was actually a really exciting period to think that way. So coming from my focus in, at EY was very much I'm local focus of Adelaide in a national organisation that's in a in an Asia-Pacific organisation that's in world. the worldwide yeah. organisation yeah. to coming into an organisation that's just said we are global. And um, they weren't getting some traction with some of their activities. The chairman and the managing partner said, can you have a look at this and give us your perspective? Um, And so I went back with this paper that essentially said, um, I I interviewed all of the directors and said, you've got this strategic statement. Imagine we had reached that year um, and you're popping the champagne 
tell me, talk to me about what what are you what, seeing? What done, what, what's yeah. happening? What are the things that are going on? What is and what was like? interesting was they all had a different champagne moment. Yeah, so I went back to the business and said, okay, that's okay. I'm going to take all the champagne moments and mix them all together, but then show you. Some are talking about design aspects, some are talking about clients, some are talking about internal things. And then, so what does that actually mean? And I questioned that. And then they said, fine, now you go fix it. And I went, oh, <laughs> oh, actually. So your role um, at this point was change. I was actually a consultant and then they said, but now you're going to have to come into the business. So I can't remember my title. It kept changing and I'm not overly big on titles. I don't really mind. But it was essentially working with the COO and the managing partner to look at that, I suppose, organisational aspect of we have a strategy, but how do we get traction and embed that throughout all parts of it and get, I suppose, that stack on top of each other that covers everything from, you know, people to marketing to um, we didn't have internal communications. We didn't have a knowledge platform. Um, we built, we introduced uh, CRM Dynamics. We introduced uh, I- internal communications, knowledge, a digital work environment, um, you know, so that people could work on projects. We could pass a project from, you know, Adelaide sends it off to Perth, sends it off to London, sends it off to the US sends it off to Asia or whatever is happening um, that you could essentially 24-7. So it's not just, and it's a mindset as well, am I going to give up this piece of, because I'm I'm working on this, this, this design, this design's mine, how do you hand it over? So it's not just the... The functional bits, it's its all that, uh, I suppose McKinsey would call it, the softer components that are always the really hard mm. bits to implement. Um, so it was taking that yin and yang approach. <laughs> I'm, one of the main questions that we get asked quite a fair bit, mm-hmm. especially from looking at things from an organisational strategy point of view, mm-hmm. is everyone kind of knows where they want to be executives leaders they want to mm-hmm. know where they kind of want to be that champagne moment you used as an example they just don't know where to start where could you talk us through where your brain goes to where would you start do you just start by speaking to people what's your method when method. kicking off a project um the interesting thing is I mentioned at the very beginning I did an egg science degree, which sounds unusual that I'm now in this space, but um, what it has given me is that research approach that you have to start with not your knowledge base. You actually have to start elsewhere. And so when we submitted a paper um, in my degree, at a minimum you had to have 20 journal references. If you d- Don't hand up the paper if you don't, and, and um, that was expected. So... When I start something, you know, I'll, I'll do, I will, I'll, I'll read journal articles, I'll re- read uh, business magazines, I'll do interviews individually with people, I'll do workshops, I'll look at re- things that are have got absolutely nothing to do with either that industry or that problem to try and fi- find out how other things have been solved and how I can use different, um, uh, use different ideas to actually solve a similar problem. And so I very much am a analyst at heart. Um, I will draw that methodology and approach. Um, after my Woods time, I went to uh, Unispace, they're in construction and design. They had picked an ERP system and said, uh, we need you to implement it and you've got, we had pretty much a year um, for an ERP system across six, 16 countries with uh, not one of them had a, 
a set of um, like their chart of accounts and things like that yeah. was the same. Some were in Excel, some were in the different platforms. Um, but we did a lot of workshops of trying to understand. So the challenge for us was the the product had already been decided and we were told this is it, this is the deadline. But I still did take that approach of hold on a minute before we, we have I have to find out how they are, what they're doing, how they're feeling, how can we how can we implement this in an agile way um, and and go through that particular process. So very much start what is thinking, then I'll kind of digest it, pull it together. To me, um, if I can't draw it to explain it, then it's not working. So it has to be, whether it's a triangle or a whatever diagram, it turns out to be that it at least gives that same kind of uh, visual when you're explaining it to people. And I'm very much coming, you know, with a bit of a marketing background in my past as well, um, very much around branding initiatives that I do, um, around making sure it's really easy to understand the strategy as well. It's not, you know, a whole paragraph and I can't remember what it's supposed to be. You know, just core, really short, sharp, remembering these key things um, at the moment. Uh, in, our, in our last project was very clear on the visual. So they always knew at what stage we were at, where we were going, we were consistent the whole way. So it was every aspect of that communication component yeah. around what, what happens. So it's amazing what happens when communication is clear. It is. <laughs> it is. It is crazy how powerful. And that's that thing. If you don't bring the change people in from the very beginning and then you say, that's all right, we'll bring a comms person in and they're trying to work out, well, hold on a minute, what's what's the messaging, what's the things, and this is midway through a project, all of that should have been decided at the very, very beginning. Agreed. So, so did I answer the question then? I don't know that I did. You did. Absolutely. Okay. You, you gave us <laughs> your way of starting. When you draw... What, how do you, what does it look like? Paint a picture for us right now if you're putting something together and you say, if I can't draw it, it's not working. What, is your, what do your drawings look like? Are they diagrams? Are they graphs? Are they a bit, uh, of everything? A bit of everything? Sometimes they might be inspirational as well. They might be just moments in, I'm a bit of a movie fan. They might be movie things. They might be quotes. Um, they might be things, storytelling from a book that I've read. Um, and I, I do use yellow trace a lot because <laughs> some, you can, it's, it's in a roll of paper. So you can, you can put it on the kitchen table and lay it out and put bits and pieces and sticky notes on it and try and pull it together. And, um, you know, part of that for me is, uh, I've, I've worked with a colleague for a number of years now and she knows me really well. And there are moments where she'll say, Sue, you need to go for a run. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll go for a run. Um, and she knows that I'll get to a point in a run where I'll forget about um, my brain telling me that, you know, I'm breathing too loud and I should stop running, um, you know, you're too tired, and then I'll stop listening to the music that I'm listening to. And then suddenly, visually, in I can see all these things that I was thinking all start to fall into play. It's like my mind removes all of the side things that are going on and I'll come back from a run and I'll go, okay, this is how it goes. I've got it. I've got the, I've got the structure. So it's, it's not always the same drawing. It, it just depends. I do take inspiration from others. It's not like I sit there and I'm this magical designer. I'm certainly not an architect or um, an artist. But And I will look at other models and, you know, I'd like to say I don't copy them. I leverage them and build on well, you them. Well, go, you go down your research path. I well. do go down my research <laughs> do, path and get inspiration. Do you... Feel that they're run because the run running is an interesting one for me. I genuinely feel the same way. If I go for, get up, go mm. for a run, 
Not so much from I get the the light bulb moments while I'm running, but I find real clarity mm. when I'm running. Um, if I am thinking about something, I'll play all the scenarios out through a run and come up with the one that's I feel is most likely. It, it it's been explained to me. It's a form of meditation almost mm. running. And if if you can run without music, I find it really hard not to, oh, okay. or even run without a podcast in my ears. They they it's actually even better. They reckon because you. Uh, at one with your own thoughts while you're running well in the reverse i can't do yoga i love the stretching (laughs) but it's that whole bit at the end and they're like meditate and i'm like you don't realize that there's so much talking in my head the the fact that you're getting me to stop and just listen i the only way to get it out i need to get it out and the only way to do that is running or or draw it on paper i find i try and find meditation really stressful which sounds a bit strange but i do yeah, the the you're not alone. There there is actual studies apparently around, and don't quote me on this, and you'll probably go research this after. I will. But <laughs> there is apparently studies around um, actually just sitting by yourself, being quiet, uh, and doing that for an hour a day. Who who's got that hour? I don't know, but even if it's for half an hour, whatever it might be. Over time, you will silence those voices and you will get gain control of them. So I don't know how long it is. I haven't actually had a had a crack at it yet, but it makes sense because you would uh, it, they call it the noting technique. You almost these voices come in, you note them, and they move on. So it's an interesting. I'm worried I'd lose my ideas. I don't know. Who knows? Mm. Not sure. Phase four, let's move into Ooh. phase four. Do your thing by oh, Basement Jacks. Oh, yeah. So um, <laughs> so I suppose that lose yourself moment was very much, you know, I, I was doing this kind of global role um, and, and, you know, the uni space role was great as well. It was essentially like here's this thing, you come with all this background, it's all, it's all yours. Like mm-hmm. my colleague and I worked on it together and it was the two of us um, with the CIO just essentially try to own this project, um, which was really great fun. Um, and then I did have some stints at the Film Corporation here and at Hood Sweeney, which also really um, pulled me back into, okay, oh, okay, I'm local again. Yeah, okay. um, yeah. But I think as well I did bring in some of that global mindset. That, mm-hmm. And I th- when you have a global mindset, you don't think silo. You, you don't think about an organisation of well, which office is this, which discipline is this, you know, which, which part of it you actually really think global and that's what you need to be if you are in that role where you are implementing aspects across the organisation. Can I yes. just jump in there? Yeah. So when you are thinking global, obviously every uh, country has its different cultures. How do you account for that in your global mm. thinking? It is, it is challenging and there are, you know, it is uh, particularly, um, you know, the last project implementing this ERP system in 16 countries. Mm. So the approach, you know, working with the US, even though they speak English, it's a totally, totally different culture to yeah. Australia as is the UK mm-hmm. um, and working with uh, people across Europe. Um, and so I think it's, I suppose going back to, that that moment um, in the EY thing around, you know, the I did the Myers-Briggs thing. We also did Rogen training, which um, apparently they used to win the Sydney Olympics bid. And I don't know if you know Rogen training. It's no. presentation skills, yeah. um, essentially one-on-one. But the, the really great thing about that was understanding your stakeholders, segmenting them, 
um, you know, before stakeholder mapping and all that time, empathy mm. maps kind of were yeah. all the thing. This is all way back then. Um, and really thinking about it, how do they think, what are they interested in? Um, and you could apply it, I think, back again of that Myers-Briggs concept or any other concept of how do they make decisions? Um, is it introverted or extroverted? You know, what's their process? And so working with different cultures, even there's a different culture in a different office, even if it's in Australia, mm. um, of what does that mean? Um, and then how should I approach that? So going back to that Unispace example, even though we were implementing the same platform, same processes, the way that we approached it was different. And, mm. and to do that, we actually um, implemented it slowly. We did Australia first. Um, we did New Zealand. Then, um, no, we didn't. Sorry, we started with the US. US, yeah. Australia, New Zealand, um, UK, and then Europe. And so we really did stage it and we learnt along the way as well and built on that particular uh, process. So that ongoing learning, but also making friends. I know this sounds really silly in those different locations to say, is this going to work? Like, can you can you tell me things um, that I need to know about this particular office or this yeah. particular culture? So, is it making friends or building trusting relationships? Is it? The, it's both. Both. It's both. And we would. How do you make friends with someone on the other side of the world? At that point, where at that point we uh, we were very lucky back then. You could travel. Uh, so, <laughs> for example, when we went before we even kind of started that implementation process, we went and did workshops. Yeah. Um, we brought different people in, but the start of the workshop, we did this four in four. They had four minutes, four questions. And we told them beforehand, because some people need time to think, I would be able to do four and four very quickly, but others can't. And so I can't remember the exact four questions. But one was uh, my fingerprint, essentially saying, who are you, where'd you come from kind of thing. Um, one of them was, what is your superpower? Another one was, they had to tell us their best or worst change experience. Now, what that meant through that particular process, the two most important questions were the superpower and the most important question was the one about the, the change experience. But we got them talking to us straight away. Um, they told us their stories. We remembered who they were. I still remember Amy with the carpet that made her cry. You know, she told this knowledge, uh, sorry, change management story of what happened with the client and how the change had not been managed and this problem with carpet. But we kind of gained their trust. At the same time, I was, you know, doing this workshopping on the board saying, here are all the things that we know we shouldn't be doing in a, in, when we're implementing this. Here are all the things that we know we should be because mm -hmm. you're telling us what to do. Um, we also used a lot of humour and games. Um, we would take, like when we went to the US, we took Tim Tams. We were very <laughs> parochial to Adelaide. We took fruit chocks and things that we would have taste testing. We would have games and people would be, win like the next time they'd be like, I want to win the packet of Tim Tams. And we're like, okay. And then we went to the UK. They were like, our chocolate's better than yours. So we had Malteser <laughs> competitions of who could pick which, which Malteser was Australian and which one was from the UK because it's different chocolate. You know, we did stupid things like that, but what it meant was then they'd come and see us and say, hey, there's this problem here, can you help? Sometimes it wasn't even our area, but we would make sure we helped them. Yeah. We're like, you know what, I can connect you to, oh, did you know there's someone over in the, in you know, the Boston office that you could work with and fix this problem? So... It's amazing what happens when you can be a little bit human. Yeah, just be a person, <laughs> be and, a person. and realise that if, if you are working on these projects that you're probably six months or more in front of them. Yeah. And when you're introducing it, this is all really new. 
You have to make it as as welcoming. At um, Oricon, where I am now, we use this the five E's at looking at an experience and what are the aspects of that of how you can. Um, and it is kind of a change management model of you know how you how they enter that, how you entice them to come here. You know what is that rich experience that they are part of that, and that's very much my approach to change management. It's it's that experience aspect that's critical. Absolutely. I didn't get into my next stage. So anyway, <laughs> we'll move there. So I suppose my do do your thing is is now that I've I've come I've got a big I suppose not just a toolkit. I've got like a you know a backpack of I am a backpacker of you know the last three phases of my career of all of these tools and learnings um, of what I've got and drawing on that but also being confident enough to to really trust in myself. Um, and so this phase I, I'm calling my do your thing with um, Basement Jacks of around be happy in what you're doing, continue to put your hand up. Um, I'm very much someone that I I need a north but I don't actually need a direct path. Yeah. I just need to know. And my north is not necessarily based on a title. It's It's based on am I having fun, did I learn something, and the most important thing is, did I make a difference? Mm. Have I have I helped three people? So you, you know, have people through that process. It's based on your values, and, and the very much so. I'm very much a values driven yeah. person. Absolutely. So your values of growth. Yes. Wisdom. <laughs> it sounds. Yeah, they're very very important to me. It, it it should be what drives you, but doing what you're you love cannot always be. A practical thing if you young family mm. you know they're not mortgage, that young anymore. Mortgage, yeah no but but in saying that i'm talking in in general Practically, sense that yeah yes. people might um, have mortgages to pay their you know these debts to pay yeah. and whatnot going out and starting their own thing or following a, a career path that doesn't pay as much mm. and all these how, how did what, I think what's looking your at different outlets as well and sometimes you're in a phase of your life where, you know, I, I probably stuck at EY longer than I probably should have but I did have that fear as well of I, I work part-time, um, is anyone going to really, I'm gonna, do I start a new job and, and they don't know that I work really, really hard but mm. sometimes kids get sick, you know. Yeah. How um, many kids have you got? Just the two. Two. Uh, Gracie and Joe. They're adults now. 20 and 17 um and you know there was that fear of am I going to be accepted because I'm this part-timer um to and so at the time I kind of balanced that out with well what else could I do so I was doing some um kind of uh, I was lecturing at the university at the time so that was making me really force me to learn into a different space and things like that I'm you know lecturing to post-grad students um which got me really thinking and it brought in a little bit more income as well, marking papers and having a bit of fun. I really enjoyed that that period. Um, even looking at different opportunities. So Change Connect, I chaired that for, um, can't remember now how many years, um, which was a great experience taking it from what was originally a bit of a groundswell of people that met once a month at a, at a local pub to how could we actually start to get a change management to be elevated a bit more and start to tell the stories and there's a lot of fantastic uh, change and innovation um, projects and initiatives and people in Adelaide that that aren't really those stories aren't told we always look and go what's been done interstate or overseas but there is this melting pot of really rich 
stories um, in Adelaide. So when I became chair, my, my real focus was we need to elevate that that real um, aspect of knowledge and often knowledge managers are like the roadies we, mm. we sit behind in the black outfits and make sure the microphones are on and doing all these things and we put the rock stars out there and we're not very good at saying hey my project's pretty awesome so to me it was part of um, acknowledging getting people to acknowledge well that project that I worked on was actually pretty awesome which is why we introduced an awards program um, but then also trying to connect those stories out. So telling different types of stories that maybe aren't always traditional change management projects but have had that aspect of change in it. So we did hear a lot of stories that weren't necessarily traditional. I went in, implemented an ERP system and, and came out on the other side. And so for me, um, and I found that as a really rich way when maybe my work environment wasn't as exciting I had some another outlet yeah. to give me. And it also gave me um, the ability to pick up the phone and ring people and build networks in mm. Adelaide that because I was in this, you know, I'm on this particular uh, group and they'd be like, yeah, sure, you can talk to me. Whereas if I had a rung up previously and just gone, hi, it's Sue, do you know <laughs> I don't know that they would have been as lovely. But that was a great period um, working on the Change Connect group and evolving it from being, just this little groundswell to something that had, it had structure, it's a proper organisation um, and making sure, I, I went to a conference in the US um, and it was amazing. I walked in this room and there was like 300 people at this conference and I don't know what it was. I walked in and, and someone's just gone, oh, you're by yourself. And I went, I yes, yes, I am. <laughs> And they're like, oh, hi, I'm, you know, Bob and this is Tim and, you know, what do you do? Oh, my gosh, you're from Australia, hello. And then the whole three days I had this community that were like, there's Sue, she's the girl from Australia, we need to make sure she feels, you know, and it was in a really nice way. I'm probably telling this story in a bad way. <laughs> but I think in Australia, you know, you go, you turn up to a networking event and you kind of go, I don't know anyone here. Yeah. And every time someone looks at me, is all they do is look at my name badge and go, is your organisation or your title worthy enough for me to talk Correct. to you? It's, so um, yep. if you do go to a Change Connect event, you may notice the badge is just your first name mm. and someone gives you your badge. And it's not a badge, it's a sticker thing. But essentially what we do is if you rock up, I would see you come and I'd say, hi, I'm Sue Stewart, you are... And you say, Daniel, I'm like, oh, fantastic. Let me get your name badge. Let's get you a drink. I would start talking to you. And then I would say, oh, okay, you work there. Have you met such and such? Yeah. And because everyone started to get that, what we were finding was that not even just the committee were doing this. We all did it. There was no table to stand behind and go, hi, thanks for coming. Yeah. Take your thing, go in there. Everyone started doing it. Everyone would kind of see see someone by themselves and walk up and say, hey, hi, oh, you know, because they go, oh, my gosh, doing that and the team are busy, we'll do it. And so it became a lot of people were saying, I feel, I feel okay to rock up to these events when I'm by myself yeah. because I know that a network will just come in that and protect each other. So It's funny. I, I went to a networking breakfast yesterday morning and um, was – Asked if I'm good at these networking events. <laughs> like that was one of the questions. That's your question. And, like, and it was really, for me, it was uh, a tough question. It was, is anyone, uh, like is. is <laughs> it is, it, it's not it's easy. A, it is a difficult thing. I've been to thousands and still walking up to a group of people who are seemingly together. Yes. 
is a really tough thing to do. You so feel you're like you're muscling into a dance thing and yeah. you're trying to like squidge in there and you're like, oh, I, I can do the moves too. And I then you realise that song, the song changes and you're like, oh. I don't know if you've ever, it's a, it, it's a, one of my old favourites showing my uh, the American Pie <laughs> movies where he was trying to uh, talk to some girls yes. and he just walked in and started <laughs> laughing. Like that almost feels like what I have to do sometimes at these networking events. So, yeah, it sounds really uh, a great uh, way that you've set the Change Connector. Yeah, and that's, I mean, <clears throat> that was learning from elsewhere and how could we, you know, make people feel comfortable. And yeah. I think as a as a change person, that's part of that role, making people people feel comfortable when they when they they're essentially in any change project. They're walking into a room, they don't know anyone. They suddenly have to network and connect or do different things. You have to make them feel comfortable. And drawing back on the, the question, which was, how do you do what you love? It, I think <laughs> it it you nailed it when you said, well, you explained it in a way that you found almost a side project. I think that is the way you start it's not yeah. like i'm going to quit my job yeah. and i'm going to uh, you know you really need to do your risk assessment is quitting the job the right option no, no but what you can do is find something uh, to start on the side that is of interest and piques your interest and makes you happy absolutely uh, and then eventually that's what might grow if you if you set out to um if you set out, if you say I don't have enough time, mm. and you're sitting down watching Netflix instead of reading a book that in an area that you potentially love, like these are the things that we need to all review. Absolutely. Review. So thank you for for pointing that out. So you're now a global knowledge culture, culture manager. manager. Yes, at indeed. Oricon, another Correct. another global firm in, in engineering. Yep. What, and advisory. And advisory. So yes. what what does what does that role look like? What, what does are that you, role look like? What are you doing now? Well, okay. <laughs> uh, I started about two years ago um, and came in with a, a colleague, Felicity, who's a um, she's got a background of twenty something years in knowledge management. I come in with that that strategy, that comms, the change component, and um, we were brought in to implement a knowledge strategy. And so. Um, very much did that same approach. Okay, we need to assess this situation. This is I've worked in professional services firms for 20 years, but this is a different firm. What are the cultures that are sitting there? And I do very much take a ethnographic approach to um, culture. So looking at it from a outsider in, I spoke to a lot of people that were new to the business. What are the crazy things that, you know, as a new person, did you experience when you joined here? So trying to understand what are some of those um, cultural barriers or nuances that are a little bit different, do a lot of workshops um, and really studied that and have uh, implementing essentially a long-term knowledge strategy yep. and a component of that is a is a knowledge platform which we uh, released in November last year. So and explain a knowledge strategy. What do you what do you what do you mean by a that? knowledge strategy? Okay. So it's when you say knowledge strategy, people often just think, oh there's a knowledge, you're going to give me a platform, a piece of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not build it and they will come. I mean, there are, I'm, I'm sure a lot of organisations and Oricon isn't alone that people, you know, they build this thing and go, I've now got a lessons learnt database or I now have a knowledge database for X or Y or Z. Um, and then you look at it and you go, nothing has been touched for six months. And when I look at it, it was the same three people that loaded stuff over that period of time. Um, so it's, it's never the technology. 
It's it's never. It's it's always that cultural aspect. So we were very clear in coming in saying, you know, Felicity came with that real rich uh, technology process system components, um, and I came with that lens of, yeah, but we need them to come. And so we uh, were also given the constraint that this platform as well had to be SharePoint, which at the time is a constraint, but actually now is connecting to these a million of different things, which is fantastic. So our approach was essentially to the business. Um, there's foundational aspects around our strategy, everything from talking the same language. Um, you know, we, we, do we talk the same language in the finance system to our CRM system, to this knowledge system, to our project systems um, so you can connect things yep. essentially in a, in a wide world to um, what are you know what are some platform aspects but then starting to look at how do you actually work with groups to start to capture knowledge and do it in a way that is intuitive or just part of the everyday thing not the oh man I haven't got time it's you know I've got to do my timesheet oh I've got to do a knowledge piece so how do we embed that into this is just how we do it here it's just a natural thing so it became everything from mapping out the technology build but how do you feed it how do you make sure it's there how do you add to it how do you review the governance um, so we had to work not just with uh, the people on a pursuit and project perspective to kind of identify capture share and then use it but also how does that fit in with the rest of the business? Like, so how does that implement, um, you know, the people side, KPIs, cultural assessments? Um, what are the expectations of a leader to a, say, graduate around knowledge? One should be using it a lot. A, a leader should be um, championing it that it's that particular process and the team in the middle should be actually adding to it and building on it as well. So it's, you know, how does that impact IT? How does that impact the innovation components of the business? Um, the Marcoms perspectives around that, marketing and comms, sorry, perspective around that. And so it is very much a holistic approach, which um, is, is essentially critical for that type of thing. So we are on a, a staged journey. There is a diagram I could show it to you <laughs> um, of how we're taking the business through that. And we are using the exact same diagrams over and over and showing them where we've done this stage, these bubbles we've done, now we're moving to the next stages and we present that kind of same message constantly and, and we're progressing through that. It, it is a common uh, bollard, if that's the right word, um, that ch change people and organisational development people and culture leaders and all face is we want to adopt this new way which we believe is going to really help the culture of this place, really help the way we do things around here. But, yeah, it sits on the shelf and, like you said, it gets the three same people that log in all the time mm, and no one mm. else does it. Is your, how is your – what method are you using to overcome that? Mm -hmm. Is that part of the, the knowledge Absolutely. strategy? Absolutely. Um, so it's, it's embedding it in all parts of the business. So how do you start to embed it? We have a very distinct uh, methodology around engage, win, deliver, and there's aspects all around that. So how do we embed that into that particular process? How do we get leaders to champion, champion that to their teams? We have very dedicated areas of capability. 
Um, so we work with the capability leaders. They've nominated champions as well to actually help through that particular process. Um, we have, oh, there's so many different aspects to this. I have this massive diagram I could show you. <laughs> um, but it's looking at, and one of the ways that I try and make sure to have I covered all bases is um, I do love the McKinsey 7S model mm-hmm. um, because it at least gives you have you thought about, yes, you've probably thought about the strategy and the structure and the systems, but there is all of those other aspects around, you know, the leadership style and what does that mean? What does that mean for the skills? Do you actually have the people to complete that task? And then smack bang in the middle is is that um, that the shared values of, you know, how does that actually work? And I think there's another aspect to it, and I think McKinsey need to add another S, is what is the space, which has become really important, particularly over the last 12 mm. months, of dealing with it physically and virtually are very, very Absolutely. different. Um, so if McKinsey are listening, please add another <laughs> S. Um, and I know that probably technically could come into the middle, but I, I think it needs its own S. Um, so we have very much taken that approach around all of those aspects. So given the, the pandemic at the moment mm-hmm. and the, like you said, the world is virtual, people are working from all different parts and angles and potentially can hire anyone from any part of the world now, mm. is culture the new black? Um, oh, I think it's been the new black for a while now. Yeah. It's probably faded in the wash and gone to grey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it is and it's... It is really difficult. It's it's a difficult area, but culture, it is what it is. Um, and you have a culture at home and you would have a culture between you and your partner. Um, you would have a culture, there is a culture in your family unit, you know, like in terms of the extended family. There's a culture that sits around the uh, kitchen, uh, sorry, the Christmas table. Um, so we know this because we work with culture every day. It's those who culture isn't even at the forefront of their mind. minds. And I think... Um, What's important to understand is uh, everyone says, oh, we need a culture change. Or well, my favourite is we don't have a culture here. And it's like, yes, you do. <laughs> everyone everyone has one. It's, um, yeah, you do. And I think but it's understanding what is that culture. Mm. And so and if you put a growth mindset around culture, same thing, focus on the strengths, build up on the strengths, stop trying to pick on the poor old areas of weakness, just support those areas of weakness, but don't necessarily try to beat them out of it because I always have this feeling that someone's strength can is their kryptonite as well. My strength of being able to come up with ideas on a whim and doing all this thing is also my weakness that I can be a little bit overwhelming, I can confuse people really easily. Um, and I think the same applies to culture in terms of you need to understand what is what is there. So what are the what are the espoused values? You know, we we say this is our culture or, or our, um, we call them attributes and principles. Other people, you know, might call them um, what are the values of the organisation that we say? Then what are the aspects around? Um, uh, Edgar Schein calls them uh, artifacts. So what are all the things that you can either see or hear or feel around that particular thing. So what is the virtual workspace like? So, for example, when you have a virtual uh, workshop or session, does everyone turn on their videos or not turn on their videos? How does the meeting start? What do you talk about? What's the structure around that? Um, To a physical workplace, to what are the hero stories told? It's really interesting hearing stories in new workplaces of what gets rewarded, what's seen as funny, um, hearing those stories, looking at how people communicate so how does how do the leadership communicate 
even I, I look at emails, I study intranets, I look at all parts of communication to really unpack what are the words that they always use. You know, I put things in word clouds and try and pop out things and say, do you know that you're trying to get them to do this? But when you look at the language that you're using, it's actually not what you want to happen. Um, and then obviously at the bottom of all that is the underlying assumptions, which is just this is how we do things here. And you don't often know in culture that you're going against those assumptions until you slam right into the and you go, oh, that's that landmine. <laughs> and anyone who's started a new job, you have this honeymoon period where you bubble <clears throat> along and you go, oh, this place is awesome. And then you suddenly whack into one of those landmines and honeymoon period's over. And that's where you're coming in new and culture essentially smacks you in the face and tells you these things. But it to me... You work with the culture and you – because if you're going to try and change it, that, that could take – I don't know they say, what, takes seven years or more. Um, and culture is 70% leadership. So if you're trying to implement particular initiatives and you start going, well, we're going to have to call it, change the culture along the way, wouldn't it be easier to work collaboratively with the culture and, and progress that um, unless it was a major culture change project? But, yeah. You are uh, almost – took the words out of my mouth from a ne my next question is how important is the role as a leadership play? You, you, you said 70% leadership. Does that mean we should focus on leaders. who we employ as leaders first? Look, Absolutely. One of the biggest issues we face with all the clients that we work with is that the technical leaders are the ones getting promoted, not mm -hmm. necessarily the people leaders. It is. And we're almost setting up mm. these leaders for failure. Absolutely. Because we're not giving them the tools or the behaviour aspects to be able to deal with the people problems. Um, can, is, do, can you expand on that and your thoughts on what we should be doing for um, our leaders? I think organisations are getting better. I mean, back in my EY days, they would, you know, big fours, they work on a pyramid system, you know, you employ a lot of graduates and, you know, you, you need attrition so you can kind of get to that partnership level. Um, and back when I was there, you know, there was an element of you'd be a technical expert and then there was ex expectation that you would move up to the next level and then start to win work and have these client relationships in these big teams and you could you could pick the ones that wouldn't last mm. and it was horrible to see because their option was um, they would they would hit this glass ceiling of, well, I'm a technical expert so unless I'm going to move up the ranks into shareholding, mm. um, I'm either going to be kicked out or I move up the ranks in shareholding and I don't actually have the people skills to manage that big team or I'm not strong in business development. Clients love me when I do the work for them, I build these phenomenal relationships. Am I good at building new relationships with clients? Not always. So I think though, uh, I like jump to now um, and our organisation in particular have a really strong career pathway development, building up those skills and looking at technical experts and saying, yes, you're, you're really great in these technical areas, but we need to build up these other, I suppose, softer skills, leadership skills, but also acknowledging that you do need people that are really, really good technical experts. You don't want to round out all their edges yeah. because that's why they're at what they are and finding good roles for them. Yeah, well, that's it. Don't put them in in charge of a exactly. group of people. That, that, and it's probably not what they want to do anyway. I they, know. So that's, why would they want to do that when, correct. you know, this is what they love and this is what they're really good at and then you're, you're getting that square peg and you're shoving it in a round hole and you're wondering why it's not working. So I think I think organisations are getting so better So it's a workforce planning issue here. Is that what we're saying? It or? is, um, and it's and it's making sure that 
when they are hiring those leadership you know roles to to acknowledge and and look at what is this person's leadership style because you you bias yourself you know when you're because if that leader's then going to recruit leaders they're going to you generally kind of recruit people similar to you Mm. so if you're you know maybe not the greatest let's take the other way you're a really great inclusive leader collaborative you're going to pick people that are the same thing because even that leader would think I need to recruit my successes, you know, like that's the evolution that we're going through. So um, culturally it is really important to look at that leadership aspect because if you want want to see collaboration, if you want to see innovation and all these types of things, then the leaders leaders need to be espousing that and and living that because essentially staff do what their leader does. Mm. Um, And so if the leader's not doing it, then I don't to do it if I you know I don't have to share knowledge or I don't have to you know capture it and do this particular process because my leader's not doing it don't have to say hello in the morning I don't have to say hello in the morning (laughs) because my leader's not doing it absolutely do you where do we start with working on our leaders is it thrusting you into leadership programs is it working on um yeah what what's the answer I I don't think there's one because the because you'll find, well, what we've found is a lot of leaders are told that they should be doing a leadership program right. and don't really want to. I may not want to. Mm. Some people are like, the last thing I want to do is have staff reporting to me mm. um, or, or even go up that I'm happy in my space. And I think um, Oricon do it really well. They identify, they've got different programs um, where it's essentially the the leadership course uh, that they, one of the ones that they do that's really great called Ascend it's actually around that authenticity. To be a really good leader, you have to be authentic and it's okay to have, you know, different areas of expertise, but it's building on those strengths and growing that mindset and and getting you to realise that some aspects you could improve on and build on, um, other ones where you may be not as strong or you might need to refine it just a little because, you know, you do have to work with other people and different types of thinking. And I think that's really progressive um, and they're seeing really good results out of that because it, you are evolving people through that journey and they are building out all of their career pathway as- aspects around that. And it's, like I said, I suppose at the beginning, careers are not linear. Things, you know, whether or not what you like or you don't like or different opportunities that you can take, there's also a life that happens at the same time that sometimes force you not to make some not not to make a jump somewhere or to make a jump somewhere um, that you have to you have to be open to opportunity but also there's an individual responsibility to this as well and I think I find challenging some people are like well I don't understand why that person got promoted over me and you think well that person's volunteered to be in all these different groups I've seen them you know put their hand up to do extra training I've seen them put their hand up to work on a project you have sat there you've worked really hard on what you're doing but in terms of developing yourself you're in the same spot that you were two years ago Um, well you have no spatial awareness you have no awareness that what you're actually doing is where we need you to be is mm. what's best for business and best Absolutely. for the people within our business, not just the particular job that you're working on, right? So it's Very about look at the, the, those conversations really come to, back to me when I when um, it's about uh, self awareness. Mm. Really, you, you're you're delusional if you believe that you deserve a promotion over this person who's spending so much more time 
working with others mm. or doing this or Absolutely. doing that. Or even outside the business, you yeah. know, uh, joining, you know, boards or committees or Correct. doing different types of activities. And it doesn't always have to be, you know, I, I mean, I was on the, uh, you know, the PNF at my kids' primary school and then joined their board, um, probably caused a bit of havoc being chair there. But that was really good fun and exposed me to a totally different industry and how things work in, a, in an area that I knew nothing about. Mm. But I came with a different perspective of how we could build a strategy at a school and, and different aspects around that. So I think um, life experience is, is critical to that career pathway as well. Absolutely. So going back to Sue Stewart, mm. how do you start each day? You're an out-of-the-box thinker. You know, Pressing the snooze button. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're an out-of-the-box thinker who has a really meticulous structure, has meticulous structure mm. in her life. How, what is your day look like? How do you structure your day? Is there a routine or do you just wing it? Uh, I, a little bit of both, mm. I think, sometimes. I may look a little bit manic, but there is some logic there sometimes. I mean, <laughs> I do have a, a pretty full diary. I have um, – when I first started work, the thought of doing a to-do list was like, oh, who does to-do lists? <laughs> but I actually – when you have kids and there's other things happening, you kind of do need a to-do list. And when my children were younger and I was travelling around, you know, the globe on different projects and initiatives, there were Excel spreadsheets on the on the fridge of which child was where and who was picking them up from school and whatnot. You have to be, you have to do some things like that uh, sometimes. But from a structure, my day is, um, I'm not good at running in the morning. Don't expect me to do much until about 10 o'clock, I think. Is (laughs) Is it after the coffee? After the coffee kicks in. Woo! Uh, (laughs) I do have a bit of a a method. I find it difficult Particularly now, I think, you know, this whole, uh, even though I've worked from home for a number of years because, like, Unispace didn't have an office here originally, um, to that I get more work done either at night or on the weekend um, to actually, you know, that idea thinking that I'm talking about that drawing, that happens out of traditional work hours. I can't, you know, most of my day is meetings Mm. um, and, you know, consulting with people, asking them questions, workshops and things like that and then, I sit down and I just digest it and break it up. So I probably have a pretty mundane. Mm. I think it's a mundane day. Yep. I think, you know, jobs and go home, cook dinner, a nice dinner with it. Sometimes leftovers. <laughs> leftovers. <laughs> What's for dinner? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so we've gone, we're well past the hour mark of the uh, – so, No, that's fine. It's not a problem at all. Um but we'll start wrapping up now yes. and, and the way we like to wrap up our mm-hmm. conversation, have a bit of fun, Okay. ask some quick fire questions. We are, the first question is is still related to everything we've spoken about. We are very big readers here at Synergy IQ and creating mm-hmm. Synergy podcast. We, um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of people we get on the show, we talk about books a lot. Can you provide us a book that you would have read in your career that you felt propelled you or helped you grow whether it's in the growth mindset phase or the leadership space or um see i can't do one thing okay all right well maybe i would would pick the the design for change the dan brown thing was big for me because i realized that my thinking was okay the way that you know like going through that design thinking in in iterations and testing and Mm. i'm like oh yay it's okay to think that way um, I found really good. And I'm, I'm a big lover of um, anything Malcolm Gladwell writes. Oh. 
Um, and I used the tipping point as um, uh, when, when we were working on this knowledge strategy and implementation and I had, you know, my boss saying, when are you launching? I'm like, we're not at a tipping point yet mm. because our thing was we had to have a certain amount of content in our platform before we would go live. And so I was kind of holding up this thing going, no, not releasing it, not releasing it. We don't have a tipping point because what will happen is someone will – we've created essentially a Google, so you Google – comes at, you know, solar farms and it tells you proposals, pitch decks, uh, research, past projects, all that type of stuff. Um, and I said, but they're going to type solar farms and nothing comes up and they'll say this thing's useless, goodbye. Yeah. I'm like, I need a tipping point. And so then I had to explain the Malcolm Blackwell tipping point. But I love his storytelling and how you can, there's a lot of change in the aspects that he covers. So for me, he's a good storyteller. Yeah. Um, Tipping point and outliers. Absolutely. The two, they have, I'm reading the new one now, the Talking to Strangers. That's, which, um, yeah. no, that's his old one. That's, that's, well, it is. It's a few years ago. Yeah, no, no, but he's actually got it. For me, he, it's a new one. I haven't read that one. Yeah, he's actually got one. He's just released like two weeks ago. Yeah. So that's why I say it's an old one. But oh, it, it is, the, Talking with Strangers is brilliant. Mm. You've you got to actually listen to the podcast. Uh, to the audio book. Because he does it himself, someone he, said. Yeah, he does. Yeah. He does the audio book himself, but he also had a lot of the stories. Talk, yeah. he, he refers back to the original. Uh, I do need to go The original that audio one. in the audio book. So, yeah, actually, it's brilliant. Awesome. It's very, very clever. Uh, if you were to give yourself advice to your 10-year-old self. My 10-year-old self. What would that be? Stop counting your bruises. Um, no, I used to <laughs> sit in the bath and count my bruises and I feel like I do have a lot of scars and bruises from change projects. Um, but that's all part of the learning, isn't it? I think I, I do reflect a lot, even though I seem to be very much future-orientated. Um, I do reflect a lot around, like, personally, what worked, what didn't, what should I know. I do have notebooks of, you know, things that I've read or learnt and my my little lesson learnt books and things like that. And I use that for inspiration sometimes as well. If I'm lost, I'll go back and go, yeah, okay, yep, yep, I told myself this, I told myself that. So I think keep learning and um, keep writing it down and, and looking back. I think make sure you reflect back. Yeah, never put too much time. You can never put too much time into learning, I don't mm, think. That's one thing I bang on to my, my children about a lot. What's one item on your bucket list? Oh, I do have visions of like having a coffee shop somewhere, but I just don't think I could do <laughs> customer service anymore. But uh, if I if I really could just pick anything and it wasn't based on my experience, I'd love to be like an art curator or something okay. and like put, you know, exhibitions together of different art and whatnot. I'd find that really awesome. It would be pretty cool. It would be cool. If you had access to a time machine mm-hmm. and you had a two-way trip, so up and back. Yep. You could either go to the future or the past. Where would you go? Interestingly, I'd go backwards. I wouldn't. Um, and the only reason is um, I suppose that reflection bit, my mum passed when my son was three months old and it's I think having having kids is probably the hardest change project I've ever worked on yeah. and it's still changing. The most emotional. Um, and the most rewarding. Yeah. And to be able, I wish I could go back and just say, thanks, mum. I don't, and I'm sorry I caused you all those problems <laughs> when I was a kid. And kind of I understand, you know, things that happened and why they happened. So I think for me, acknowledging, I have, and that's why now I've got, you know, a mentor that I started at EY. He's still my mentor now. 
um, Andrew Holzman, and I acknowledge him often too because I never acknowledge my mum enough, I think. You know, I said I loved her and stuff, don't get me wrong, but you kind of take parents for granted sometimes and um, so I know that I'm getting a bit soppy at the end of this, No, I think it really? You're um, right though, you definitely do take your parents for granted mm, more than anyone, anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm guilty as charged. I think we all I got a phone call from my mum the other mm. the, the other day now I'm getting soppy and she called me and said, hey, would you mind calling your mother every now and again? <laughs> and I went, oh, no, I've hit that point. You've hit that I'm point. The, Remember I'm, me? I'm the cats in the cradle in the <laughs> That's the <laughs> – I've hit that point. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I – So anyone listening, call your mother <laughs> or your father and say thank you. I think it is. And a, sorry. It is a good lesson. But out of that, I do have a question mm. about the mentorship, which yes. is – um, how much emphasis have you, would you place on a mentor? Um, my it, mentors have been, I mean, I had my first job when I was, you know, uh, cleaning soil. He was awesome. Um, Ian Porter was very much work should be fun. You should be having a great time. We're going to learn. We're going to do awesome things, but we need to have a great time. And so he kind of gave me that work should be fun component and he was really challenging. One time, first time I'm about to present to all these bulb growers and he's like, are you ready to present? I'm like, yes. And he said, oh, you've got little cards there. And I said, yes, I do. And he said, show me your presentation cards. And I hand them over and he rips them up. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> and he just went, if you're not, if you look at those cards, it shows you're not confident and you are not walking out there talking to these guys. And they were all guys. Um not looking confident and so it was like from from then on and I've never used um presentation cards ever but he pushed me in that way just as um you know working with um Andrew Holzman at EY and also he was chairman of Woods Bagot through that experience as well and he helped me get exposed to that Woods Bagot role like he helped me leverage up um so having the yeah it's it's so important having these people absolutely and like when I was at Woods I had Ivan Ross who I think he thought I was crazy most of the time, but he trusted me and he he was a really uh, solid analytic. He was COO, CFO. I would come up with these crazy things and between us, um, he had Boston Consulting background, uber smart, um, really elevated how I could deliver stuff as well to not be um, so out there. So yeah. I've learned a lot from, I suppose, those three key people, absolutely. It's funny because we often get asked, how do you find a mentor and all this sort of stuff? And uh, the way I've always gone about it is uh, just ask as many questions and almost you don't, it's not like you have to ask them, can you be my mentor, mm. but just build a relationship with them. Absolutely. If someone with that amount of knowledge, they're all, they're, most people in that space, in mm. that, at that level, want to share it. Absolutely. So, and you just ask. Exactly. Say, so would you mind, I'm going for a particular role, can I Can I talk to you about it? Where do you? Yeah, yeah, and where do you think, you know, I would fit well or, you know, be honest. And yeah. they generally are, mm. which is awesome. Yeah, absolutely agree. So going back to our quick fire oh, questions. We're not doing quick fire very <laughs> we well. We never do. <laughs> These normally take up, but now. Um, if you could have one superhero. You, so you actually said earlier before what one of the questions that you asked was what's your superhero power? Oh, yeah. What the is leftovers. <laughs> yeah. what's one superhero oh, power? I always say, and my colleague says it's not a, it's not a superpower. Um, I hate filling out forms <laughs> with, with a vengeance. That's and it, so to, yeah, the administrative. 
I'm, yeah, and, and I think it's that whole, particularly when someone says, can you fill out a form and they're asking you but they have half of the information already. Yeah. It just, it drives me to absolute distraction and I've used it a lot in my past, you know, a few roles of saying, and it comes down to user experience. If we want someone to complete this task, we have to remove all that stuff out of the way, which is I have to fill out a form to do it so I'm not going to do it. You yeah. know, like just got to remove that stuff. So to me... I see it as my superpower because I'm always looking for those little pains that are reasons why people aren't going to do what mm. we need them to do to go through that particular process. If I could get a superpower, I would love, I always say I'd love the power of hindsight um, <laughs> to be able to to kind of, uh, you may have noticed I tend to think out loud. Sometimes I say things that I probably shouldn't. Um <laughs> So if I could, before I did it, have that power of hindsight, go, no, she'll not say that because that's not going to go across very well. So that would be my my wish of a superpower. That's brilliant. And last question, do you have a mum slash dad joke? Okay, this one's really sad and I can never remember jokes, but what did the block of cheese say to the change manager? <laughs> what did the block of cheese? I can't bear so. it any longer. <laughs> <laughs> it's really sad. It's horrible. It's the first. It's the first change management joke that we've got, and there you managed you to get the nice cheese in there as well. So absolutely, I cannot bear it any longer. Cammon, I cannot bear it any longer. Yeah, brilliant. Sorry, brilliant. <laughs> it's brilliant because it's that terrible. I love it. Thank you very much, Sue. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. It's a bit of fun going down memory lane. Where can we find you? Where can people get in contact with you? LinkedIn's probably the easiest. So Susan Stewart at Oricon, A-U-R-E-C-O-N. And it's Stewart with the link. With E-W-A-R-T. E-W-A-R-T. Perfect. It's been an absolute pleasure going, yeah, like you said, going down memory lane. The out of the box thinking with the music titles of your phases, I absolutely love that. We'll have to uh, see if we can. Oh, I'll, I'll do a some. playlist. You can put that at the link, <laughs> and everyone can listen to it. Or maybe add to the playlist. We should put, create a an open playlist. Create our own playlist. Absolutely. Yeah, if, you, if you've got the time, create a playlist of your own career. It'd be interesting to mm. let us exactly. let us know about it. Beautiful. So check us out at synergyiq.com.au. Thank you very much again, and uh, we'll catch you next time, guys. Thank you once again for joining us here at Creating Synergy. It's been great spending this time with you. Please jump on to the Synergy IQ Facebook and LinkedIn page where the discussion continues after the show. Join our mailing list so you'll know what's happening next at synergyiq.com.au. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you really enjoyed it, please share it with your friends.